Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Today on the show, The List. A secret list of dishonest police officers and the public had no clue. It's an hour-long special from New Hampshire Public Radio about a list that could shed important light on cops in the state. The problem is, most residents don't have access to it. To turn a blind eye is basically saying, well, I hope the justice system works. That's not good enough for me. We're talking about police officers who carry a gun and a badge and who have the right to arrest us. It's a special trust. Some cops want the list to stay secret. Others don't think they belong on it in the first place. Just because someone's on the list doesn't mean they did something wrong. They're like, that happened to you? Why are you still doing this job? And I whisper to them, I go, I don't know. We'll also hear what the New Hampshire Supreme Court has to say. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us on Next. Today, a special broadcast of The List. It's a new hour-long documentary from New Hampshire Public Radio's document team. It looks at the story of a secret list that could help answer a big question many are grappling with right now. Can we trust the cops? And a warning, this may not be suitable for children. There's a graphic description of murder in the first 10 minutes of the show. NHPR's senior reporter Jason Moon takes it from here. Nancy West is a local reporter in New Hampshire. She's been at it a long time, more than 30 years, and she's got a reputation. Blunt, curmudgeonly, insistent. Yeah, some places you don't want to drop my name, but that... (laughs) Actually, there's a lot of places. Don't drop my name. All right. You know, I have more questions, so please don't end the press conference. Nancy, uh, do we have time for one more question? At press conferences, Nancy has a way of raising the temperature in the room. I don't know, Nancy, because we have not been able... Can I finish? No, let me finish. When Nancy starts in on something, well, she may never stop. And that definitely goes for her coverage of cops. Once you do one story about a police officer who's done something wrong, then you get about 10 tips on another police officer. So you sort of develop some expertise in that area. Back in 2006, Nancy worked for the state's biggest paper, the Union Leader. And one day, she gets one of those tips. The tip was about a lawsuit between two sets of cops. The state troopers believed that the Highway Patrol had made illegal websites. Illegal websites. No, really. The state troopers thought the Highway Patrol was making themselves sound too much like state troopers on their website. And so they sued. Nancy broke the story. The union leader, her newspaper, went with the headline, Feuding Forces. But there was something else in the lawsuit that really caught Nancy's eye. 
something that would come to define her career as a journalist in New Hampshire. At the time, I did not realize what an important story it was. Nancy found a transcript of testimony given by the woman who ran the highway patrol. In the testimony, she made a strange allegation about the other side, with a term that Nancy had never heard before. The head of the state troopers union, in her opinion, shouldn't testify if this civil lawsuit went to trial because he had a lorry issue. A lorry issue. At the time, Nancy didn't know what that term meant. But she could tell it had something to do with whether that state trooper could be trusted to tell the truth. Well, the word Lori didn't send my reporter interest tingling, but the fact that somebody was calling a top state trooper a liar or a potential liar uh, made me very curious about what the heck is a Lori issue. Nancy started in on figuring that out. She talked to attorneys and law professors and dug up old case files. And she learned that a lorry issue was a kind of black mark for police officers. If a cop had one, it meant that somewhere, sometime, something happened that could be used to call their credibility into question during a trial. And I was very startled to find out that a police officer could have dishonest behavior already in his discipline file and still work as a police officer. This startled me. But that wasn't all she found out. Nancy also got the scoop of a lifetime. She learned that for years, government lawyers had kept track of all these officers. They had a list, a secret list, of cops whose trustworthiness was in question. Nancy couldn't believe it. When I started asking questions about the list, I actually had a county attorney say, I can't talk about that. I can't even, I can't talk about that. That's secret. Now, as a reporter, you know, you hear the word, can't talk, (laughs) it's a secret. It's like, that's all I wanted to work on. The story about website shenanigans between two sets of cops was suddenly so much more than that. Nancy wanted to know. And she thought you might like to know, who is on that list? There was a secret list of dishonest police officers, and the public had no clue. And they had a right to know. There are lists like this all across the country, including other states in New England, like Massachusetts and Connecticut. Lists that could help you decide whether you should trust the police, even whether you should trust individual cops. These are the different reasons people were put on the list. Falsifying reports or records, issuance of unlawful orders. The only problem, depending on what state you live in, there's a good chance you're not allowed to see those lists. We're talking about police officers who carry a gun and a badge and who have the right to arrest us. It's a special trust. To turn a blind eye is basically saying, well, I hope the justice system works. That's not good enough for me. Why do these secret lists exist? And what have they done to the way you think about police? Just because someone's on the list doesn't mean they did something wrong. Everybody's wanted the Lori list. That's sort of like the holy grail. If you were accused of killing someone in the late 1980s in New Hampshire... 
Chances are Jim Moyer would be your lawyer. In those days, Jim was part of a team of just three public defenders who handled homicide cases for the whole state. Jim wears glasses and has the air of a professor. He's steady, and he tries to extend that calm to the people he represents, people who often have good reasons to be a little freaked out. With my clients, I always tell them, you know, by the time the prosecutor's done with his opening statement, you're going to wish you took that plea, which is always true because they're giving their best case. Jim's job as one of the only public defenders for homicide cases put him at the center of some of the state's biggest news stories during that time, including the case that gave the Lori List its name. The case began in 1989 with the murder of 61-year-old Lucian Fogg. He was a roofer who lived on a secluded property in the town of Franklin, New Hampshire. He had a hunch in his back and he had a cane. Lucian Fogg had been beaten, strangled, and stabbed ten times. His body was found buried in some leaves in the woods on his property. The man charged with the murder, Jim's newest client, was Carl Laurie. Here's how police say it went down. On April 14, 1989, Lucian Fogg came home to find Carl Laurie, who he knew, rummaging through the cabinets in his kitchen. Lucian tried to push Carl out of his house. They struggled. Carl fell against the wood stove and burned his arm. Lucian went for the phone to dial 911. But before he could, Carl killed him. Afterwards, according to police, Carl Laurie put Lucian Fogg's body into the bed of Lucian's pickup truck and drove it into the woods. He left the body there, covered with leaves, and drove away in the pickup truck of the man he had just killed. The next week, the Meals on Wheels volunteer, who was used to being greeted by Lucian Fogg in his driveway when he made deliveries, noticed that the food he'd been dropping off wasn't being eaten. By the third day, he called the police. About a week or so later, police bring in Carl Laurie for questioning. Witnesses had seen him in Lucian Fogg's truck the night police believe he was murdered. Carl Laurie was known for being quiet, and by his own admission for his drinking problem. His nickname, Butch, was tattooed across his fist. Police interrogated Carl Laurie for six long hours. The interrogation was full of all the things you'd expect from watching TV. Even a good cop-bad cop moment where one officer shouts that he's sick of playing games and storms out, while the other one gets in real close and pats Carl on the leg and says he can tell by his face that he wants to come clean. Carl denies everything. At the end of the six hours, police arrest Carl, and he spends the night in county jail. After a few hours' sleep, he was interrogated again. The police chief uses Carl's nickname. He says, you didn't mean to do it, did you, Butch? According to police, Carl breaks down in tears and confesses. Later, as an officer booked him for the murder, Carl said, I'm sorry it happened. I didn't mean to hurt Lucian. Remember how Jim Moyer said most people will wish they had taken a plea deal after the prosecution lays out their side of things? The case against Carl Laurie did seem strong. But Jim, he wasn't so impressed. Jim argued at trial that Carl's confession was coerced. Six hours of the cops wearing Carl down, of feeding him details about the crime, 
of threatening him with a first-degree murder charge, of saying he would get off easier if he showed remorse. In a lot of Jim's defense, it got back to this idea, that the police did a sloppy, improper investigation. But would the jury buy that argument? The Carl Laurie case was, in my career, the longest jury deliberation I've ever been through. I believe, if I remember, it was four days, which is really long. On the fourth day, the jury announced it was deadlocked. The judge told them to keep going. Then, a verdict. And they did reach a verdict, which was guilty on first-degree murder. And first-degree murder, you know, you bring him back into the courtroom, they say first-degree murder, the judge sends him to life without parole, and that's that, and you walk out the door. We go down to the cell block downstairs and just talk for a little while. I mean, there's very little to say at that point. Um, I remember Carl being very gracious, though, and thanking us for doing, you know, everything we could. That was the last time Jim Moyer and Carl Laurie spoke in person. For Jim, it was on to the next homicide case. For Carl, it was off to state prison. Coming up, something happens that will keep the Carl Laurie case in Jim's life for the rest of his career. This is a special broadcast of New Hampshire Public Radio's documentary, The List, on Next from the New England News Collaborative. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. You're listening to a special broadcast of The List. It's a one-hour documentary from New Hampshire Public Radio's document team. Here's senior reporter Jason Moon. About a year after the guilty verdict, Jim Moyer is walking out of a courthouse when he bumps into a prosecutor he knows. And he took me aside and said, hey, did you hear about Steve Laro?" Steve Laro. Steve Laro was a Franklin police officer one of the ones who investigated Carl Laurie's case. Did you hear about Steve Laro? I said, no. He said, oh, well, there's lots of stuff about Steve Laro that you need to find out about. Let's not be coy. What what is it? He was coy. Basically, what it was was that um, Steve Laro had a background um, of professional dishonesty, Jim is being polite here. At Steve Laro's first job as a cop in Massachusetts, he got so many letters of complaint, his chief said his personnel file was three inches thick. The letters alleged that Steve Laro was verbally abusive, that he threatened people with physical harm, and that in some cases he choked people who questioned his demeanor. It got so bad, the chief sent Steve Laro to see a psychologist The psychologist concluded that he, quote, should not be entrusted with a gun and a badge and that he should be referred to counseling. 
Despite all this, Steve Larrow got another gun and badge when he was hired by the police department in Franklin, New Hampshire. He arrived just a few years before Lucian Fogg's murder. At the Franklin PD, the pattern continued. Eventually, Steve Larrow's bad behavior had become so well-known that a lawyer with the New Hampshire Attorney General's office told the Franklin chief of police, quote, if you had a homicide tonight in Franklin, I would instruct you that Sergeant Larrow not be involved in the case in any capacity. So, clearly, Steve Larrow, not a shining example of protecting and serving. And here's why that mattered to Carl Lorry and his lawyer, Jim Moyer. In a famous U.S. Supreme Court case from 1963 called Brady v. Maryland, the court said that prosecutors must turn over evidence that is favorable to a defendant. Prosecutors usually have control over the bulk of evidence in a criminal trial. They work with the police who did the investigation. And before they use any of that evidence against someone at trial, they generally have to share it with the defense team. But what if the investigation found something that strengthens the defense's case? Well, sometimes prosecutors would just leave that out. In the Brady decision, the Supreme Court said, you can't do that anymore. It sounds great, but it still happens. A report from the National Registry of Exonerations looked at 2,400 exonerations in the U.S. since 1989. In almost half of those, prosecutors withheld evidence that could have helped the accused. As any practitioner knows, Brady is uh, like a piece of Swiss cheese. This is what happened in the Carl Lorry case. All that bad stuff about Officer Steve Lero, the prosecution knew about it before trial, but they just left it out. The state admits, yes, we knew about this. The issue really came down to this, which is, do we have to disclose it? And the state's position was, no, we don't. The problem with Brady, according to lots of legal scholars, is that it says prosecutors have to turn over evidence favorable to the defense only if they think it's relevant to the case. In the Lori case, the prosecutors decided all that stuff about Officer Steve Laro, it just wasn't relevant. Remember when Carl Lori said, I'm sorry it happened. I didn't mean to hurt Lucian. He said that to Steve Laro. Or did he? Laro was the only one in the room during the booking procedure when he claims Carl Lori said that. The prosecution had used that statement to undermine the argument that Carl Lorry's confession was coerced. They said that moment with Steve Lero was a second confession. But if the jury had known that a psychologist said Officer Steve Lero shouldn't be trusted with a badge, they might not have been so quick to believe that story. But Jim Moyer never got to tell the jury about that because he had no idea about Lero's history. All this was enough for Carl Lorry to launch a new appeal. The case went to the New Hampshire Supreme Court, and their decision would put Carl's last name in newspapers for decades to come. The court sided with Carl Lorry and overturned his conviction. They rejected the state's argument that Steve Laro's background wasn't relevant. And in doing so, they set a new standard for New Hampshire courts. It said the prosecution has to turn over every piece of evidence favorable to the defendant unless they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt 
that the evidence would not affect the verdict. The Supreme Court basically, not basically, expressly acknowledged that if you have evidence that's helpful to a defendant in a criminal case, you must provide it. Carl Lurie's case was sent back to a lower court, but he decided to plea to a lesser charge, second-degree murder. He's still in state prison today at 70 years old and will be eligible for parole in 2024. The state prison system didn't make Carl available for an interview. For public defenders like Jim Moyer, the Lori ruling was a big win. It meant, at least in theory, that more evidence favorable to defendants would be turned over in future cases. But for prosecutors, this ruling created a problem, a logistical problem, that they're still trying to work out today. See, to turn over evidence of an officer's checkered history in a court case the prosecutor has to first know it exists. But in New Hampshire, even prosecutors don't have access to police personnel files. Except in really rare circumstances, they're confidential by state law. So the only way for prosecutors to learn about future Lori issues is to ask. For every case involving a cop, a prosecutor had to contact the police department and ask if there was anything in the officer's file that could damage their case. This process was a huge pain. Cops testify in lots of cases, and for every single one, county attorneys were supposed to make formal requests to police chiefs. Until finally, someone said, instead of asking who's got a lorry issue every time, why don't we just make a list? A lorry list. When I started asking questions about the list, I actually had a county attorney say, I can't talk about that. I can't even, I can't talk about that. That's secret. County attorneys started keeping a list of every officer they knew about with a Lori issue, something in their history that could undermine their credibility at trial. When reporter Nancy West first started asking about the list, she says they refused to turn it over. But eventually, after filing a public records request with the attorney general's office, she was given a redacted copy. Big black boxes cover almost half of what's on every page. At the top, you have a list, different columns. You have the name. The current Lori list stretches across 14 pages. It contains the names of roughly 270 police officers. The redactions make it impossible to say how many there are for sure. The list is broken out into five columns. So under the columns, you have name, department, date of incident, date of notification, and category. Now, totally blacked out are the names and the dates of the incident. What you can see is the column that reads category. These are the different reasons people were put on the list. And these are each different, different officers. Deception and credibility truthfulness, sustained violation of department rules, truth lie investigation, misuse of authority, criminal conduct, couple of excessive force, excessive force, excessive force, department rules, misrepresentation to the chief, bias, credibility, unlawful conduct, office prosecuted, credibility. There's just quite a, a variety, but largely a lot of them based on someone's ability to testify truthfully at a trial, which is kind of sad. 
Across the country, there are many different versions of this same story. Secret lists that don't always work and that have unintended consequences. In many states, they're simply called Brady lists. A few district attorneys in Massachusetts have them. And these lists are named after that original Supreme Court case, and they're supposed to ensure that what happened in the case against Carl Lorry never happens again. But it's hard to know if it's actually working. In 2004, Robin Malone had a tough case ahead of her. She was a young lawyer in the public defender's office in New Hampshire, and her client was facing a domestic violence charge for allegedly assaulting his wife. This was not his first domestic case. We had tried to negotiate. The offer from the state had been 18 months. Um, And my client ultimately had said, no, I want my trial. She'd seen the photos of the victim. Didn't look good for her guy. But then his luck changed. I showed up in court that afternoon with the client, checked in with the prosecutor to see if all the witnesses were there and if there was anything last minute. Um, And at that point, he offered a a no-time deal. I, I looked at him. I was a little stunned, frankly, to go from 18 months to serve to nothing. (laughs) Uh, I had seen the victim come in, so I knew they had their witnesses. Confused, Robin took that offer to her client. He could plead guilty, serve no jail time, and be on probation for a couple of years. He still said no. So I was ready. I went back to the prosecutor and I said, "Um, he's he's declined, but we're ready. So should I tell the court that we're good to go? And he just looked at me. He said, okay. So we went into the courtroom. I was setting up my documents and um, putting stuff out on the table. The clerk was um, getting ready to call the judge in, and the prosecutor came in, and he grabbed me. He's like, I need, I need to talk to you. Took me back out into the hallway, and he said, we're dumping it. I said, what do you mean you're dumping it? He's like, we don't want to disclose the Lori stuff. We don't want to disclose the Lori stuff. According to Robin, rather than turn over information from the personnel file of a cop involved in the case... The prosecution decided to drop it. And my client was like, what's going on? So I took him out to one of the conference rooms and I said, they're dropping it. He's like, why? And in in that moment, I was like, don't ask why, just accept it. He's like, okay. Today, Robin is head of the New Hampshire Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. But that experience early in her career helped solidify her view and the view of most defense attorneys of the Lori list. People have a strong disdain for it. I think they hate it. (laughs) We don't trust the process. The process Robin is talking about, the Lori list, who gets on it, how that information is disclosed or not, it's actually hard to find anyone in the legal community in New Hampshire who trusts it's working exactly as intended. One problem is what Robin's story shows. The list can create an incentive for prosecutors to drop cases. Another problem with the list? The whole system relies on police departments turning over their own misconduct files. No one else has the authority to go through officers' personnel files to spot lorry issues. The responsibility rests solely with the town's police chief. The New Hampshire AG's office tries to ensure some consistency... They ask every police department to certify that they've reviewed their personnel files for Lori issues each year. But in 2019, only 17% of police departments said they did that. There's no penalty for not doing it. I wouldn't take a test that was 17% reliable. Right? 
I'm going to send my kid for a driving test. If he gets a 17%, I'm going to let him drive. It's not going to happen. Another complaint that often comes up, there's only a vague agreement on what defines a lorry issue. There aren't clear rules on which cops get added and for what. The AG's office offers a general description, deliberately lying during an official proceeding or in a police report, falsifying records or evidence, theft, fraud, egregious dereliction of duty, excessive use of force, and mental instability. Officers' names are only supposed to be added to the list if an internal affairs investigation confirms that one of those things happened. But even within those categories, there's a lot of gray area. What if a cop fakes their time card to get overtime pay? Did they falsify a record? Should they go on the list? It's up to individual police chiefs to decide. But whatever they decide, the public doesn't get to know about it. After the break, how that secrecy backfires for some officers today. It's the kiss of death for your career. This is a special broadcast of New Hampshire Public Radio's documentary, The List, on Next, from the New England News Collaborative. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. I'm Morgan Springer. And you're listening to The List, a one-hour special from New Hampshire Public Radio's document team. Well, um, I'm John Gannert. Uh, a lot of people say Gantert, but... It's really pronounced Gannert. <laughs> there was a time in John Gannert's life when things got bad, really bad. He got evicted from his apartment. Then his girlfriend dumped him. To cope, John decided to escape to different worlds. He started writing science fiction. I know this is stupid, but uh, <laughs> it's about an apocalyptic Earth. And it follows a team of pilots. The stories are inspired by the ones his grandpa, a World War II pilot, used to tell him. But they're also about what John was going through at that time. The more action that's in the book, that was one of my worst days being fired. That I, I just kind of harnessed all of that negative energy and I had to put it into writing. And at the end of the day, I might have punched out 35 to 40 pages without eating anything. And I felt better. It all started when John Gannert was fired from his job as a cop. It happened in 2011 at the Rochester, New Hampshire Police Department. John was working an evening shift, and he was handed what should have been a routine assignment. Two officers just came in. They have a booking procedure. I need you to just book and process and bail this person and then get back on the street because we have about 15 to 20 pending calls, which is normal for Rochester. With that, the other officers leave. And John is left alone with the suspect. And John's job is to basically process the arrest. 
book him, fingerprint him, have someone from the court set bail, and then the guy would be released. But then there's a hiccup. The guy in custody refuses bail. This means that suddenly John has a ton of paperwork to do for an arrest that he didn't make. And meanwhile, John says his supervisor is getting annoyed that he's still at the station and not out responding to calls. You know, over 45 minutes, and then the supervisor comes back, John, what's taking so long? Get going. I'm like, this, well, listen, just get it done. I don't care. Go. Just go. Get it done. You're taking too long. John knows he could get written up for taking too long with this. So he's rushing to get it all finished, and he's almost there when he comes to a form called the Lethality Assessment Protocol, or LAP form. It might sound like a bit of bureaucracy, but it's actually an important document. The LAP form is used to gauge the risk for victims of domestic violence, which is what this guy was arrested for. If a victim answers yes to enough of the questions, it triggers an immediate referral to the local domestic violence hotline. But the victim is not there. And in desperation, John starts looking through the files of the arresting officer. He finds a recording of the victim's statement. John figures it's the best he could hope for right now. And the victim is not asked the specific questions from the lap form in the interview. But some of the answers come up anyway. So John watches the recording, and he answers yes on the form when he can, and no when he's not sure. Looking back... John admits this was a mistake. It wasn't my intention to do anything bad with it. It was an intentional mistake, and yes, maybe they should have trained me again on the lab form. John thought he would be in bigger trouble if he didn't send out this form. He was wrong. He remembers getting called to the chief's office a few days later. Oh my God, chief's chief's office, okay. What is this? So I get, get escorted upstairs. And his echelon's basically around the whole table in his, in his office. And he's like, well, it, it, uh, it, it concerns me twofold that uh, you're not conditioned to be a supervisor to make these calls. So uh, it's this, this official, official report. And I was like, wait a minute. It's a lap form. It's a courtesy form. It was still under trial. It's brand new at that point. It's not even implemented statewide. What, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's official report. And I'm suggesting you termination. John didn't know. The arresting officer had already filled out and sent off a lap form before he got there. So now there were two forms with two different sets of answers. And the difference wasn't trivial. On the form John filled out, most of the answers were marked no. And that meant the domestic violence protocols would not have kicked in. But on the one filled out by the arresting officer, most of the answers were marked yes. And that did trigger the protocols meant to protect the victim. For this, the chief fired John and added his name to the Lori list. I'm just like, are you kidding me? And I, I looked at the chief. I'm like, are you kidding me over this? I'm like, I got dumped a booking procedure. I did it the best that I could. I explained this, and you're firing me. Why? I got really upset. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to deny that. I get super upset at that table, and then I, now I understand why the sergeant was next to me because I was under escort. Eventually, John decides he wants to fight his firing through the police union. And it takes months, but after a third-party arbitrator reviews the decision, John wins. 
The arbitrator rules that, yes, John made a mistake. He violated policy and he didn't follow protocol. But the arbitrator said that John didn't intentionally falsify the form and that firing him was too severe a punishment. John is thrilled. But back at the station with the chief who fired him, things are a little awkward. I met with the chief and he's like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, good to see you. <laughs> like, okay. So John says he started applying at other police departments. And that's when the Lori list really comes into his life. As soon as I say you're anything remotely similar to this Lori list, they just mm, they kind of back up in their chairs. They, they'd stop writing. They'd, they'd cross their arms. Like They'll start distancing a little bit like you have a cold. It's, it's really amazing to watch. See, the arbitrator gave him his job back, but didn't have the power to take John's name off the list. And already in job interviews, it was haunting him. I applied over, I think, 25 times to leave Rochester right after that. When I came back and no one called me back. A few years later, a new chief arrived in Rochester, and John decides to ask if he can take him off the list. The chief says he can't. He would need a court order. And so John decides to try and get just that. He gets a lawyer, and he sues the city he works for. This is case 2015-0062, Officer John Gantert versus City of Rochester et al., His case went all the way to the state Supreme Court. And here's John's basic argument. Cops don't get enough due process when they're put on the list. A chief makes a subjective decision to put you on it, and that's it. You're marked for the rest of your career. But here's the thing. Even if John was removed from the list, in certain cases, prosecutors would still be obligated to tell the defense about John's incident with the lap form. And so this case... It's really just about whether John's name is written down on the Lori list. It's one of the unintended consequences of the list. Over time, it's accumulated all kinds of extra meaning that it was never meant to have. The Lori list was created to make prosecutors' lives a little easier, to help them remember which cops might have stuff in their past that needed to be turned over. It was not created to be a roster of cops who couldn't be hired or to become a public symbol of police misconduct. But that's exactly what the list has become. And how did that happen? Secrecy. It's public perception. If you're on this list, oh, you must be a corrupt cop. You must be dirty. And that's what I'm constantly fighting if someone ever talks about it. I'm just like, that's not what it is. The secrecy of the Lori list leaves no room for nuance. The cops who are on it share in a simple description. Their past behavior could prove useful to a criminal defendant. And that's arguably as true for John Gannert as it is for Steve Lero, the officer from the Carl Lori case. And yet, there's so much that separates them. And it's very likely that not everyone who should be on the list is. Remember, only 17% of police departments in New Hampshire said they reviewed all their personnel files for Lori issues. As for the rest, who knows? And so this is what we're left with. A secret list that doesn't contain everyone it should, that maybe contains a few names it shouldn't, and that affects everyone who's on it as if they were the same. John Ganner lost his case at the Supreme Court. He's still on the Lori list today. And he's still a patrol officer in Rochester. Fifteen years into his career, 
he says he continues to get passed up for promotions because of his place on the list. Yisra Osadig was sitting on her couch in Berlin, New Hampshire, when the video of George Floyd's death started spreading across the Internet. I remember, because I was just scrolling on my Facebook when I saw it, in my living room, it was just, I have, like, you, you know, we've all heard it before, we've all, but we've never really sat down and watched the video. And like watched it happen for long nine minutes. And that was traumatizing. The video scared Yusra. Like it scared a lot of people. But she tried to push that fear away with her next thought. So I'm like, I'm sure they're going to get what they, you know, you know, just the system is going to work it out. It's fine. So comes day one, day two, day three, still no arrests. At that point, I'm freaking out. Is the justice system going to do what it's supposed to do? Are these people going to get in trouble or not? Yusra is originally from Sudan. She's a social worker. She's also going to school for a degree in computer science. A third day passed with no arrests, and Yusra decided to do something. She made a sign. On one side, it read, Say His Name. George. On the other side, it asked, am I next? Yusra took her sign and started walking down the street in Berlin, New Hampshire, a largely white working-class city of about 10,000 people. Yusra went alone. This was not part of a planned protest. She says some people honked in support, some people stopped to ask her who was George, and one person gave her the middle finger. He's like, this is in Minneapolis. Why are you here? Go home. Like, I don't have anything better to do. Why am I worried about stuff that's happening in Minneapolis? This is not here. I was like, but it it affects me. It affected me. Then Yusra got connected online with other people in her area who wanted to do something, anything, in the wake of George Floyd's killing at the hands of police. Do you want to, maybe we can start introductions while we're waiting for Sebastian? He knows who we are. Yeah. This group includes a letter carrier, a grad student, one of them works at a restaurant. Many of them met at protests in May. And their goal is simple, to make their own local police departments more transparent. They've asked about a dozen departments to share information about their budgets and about their policies on things like use of force. They've had mixed success. One department not only turned over what they asked for, but also posted it online so everyone could see. Others have turned them down flat. But one thing that Yusra and this group cannot get from local police departments, any information about police officers who've been disciplined for misconduct. The closest thing New Hampshire has to a central database of that is the Lori list. They asked a few departments if they have officers currently serving who are on the list, but of course, they didn't get answers. And for Yusra, as a member of the public, as a black member of the public who has to wonder if she is next, if she could just peek under the hood to see if that system of police policing themselves is working the way it's supposed to, she would feel better. She says it would help just to know. But if I don't know, I'm thinking 
maybe the justice system works. Maybe they are doing what they're supposed to do. But since I don't know, maybe not. To turn a blind eye is basically saying, well, I hope the justice system works. That's not good enough for me. It's also not how it works everywhere in America. Access to police misconduct files is a patchwork in the U.S. Rachel Moran, a law professor at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, studies this. She says you can split states up into three basic categories. There are a few states that the files themselves are entirely accessible to the public, save for redactions about, you know, personal phone numbers or home addresses. Um, Those states, Florida, Georgia, I think Arizona, those are examples of states that have truly broad records laws that allow any member of the public to access the personnel file except for redactions. Then there are states where police misconduct files are somewhat public. One example is Minnesota, where Rachel lives and where George Floyd was killed. So let's put this, we'll put this in the context of Derek Chauvin for a minute, the officer accused of murdering George Floyd. He has, I believe it's 19 prior complaints over his career. Only two of them were sustained with discipline imposed, and therefore those files are accessible. The remaining 17, all we know is complaints were made and that they were closed without discipline. And then there are states like New Hampshire, where police misconduct files are confidential. If George Floyd had been killed in this state, it's possible we still wouldn't know whether the officer had a history of complaints. And in those states, one of the only ways that police misconduct makes it out is through reporters. Once you do one story about a police officer who's done something wrong, then you get about 10 tips on another police officer. Today, reporter Nancy West runs her own nonprofit news website called In-Depth NH. And she's still chasing that story of a secret list of dishonest police. And now... More than 10 years after she started digging, she might actually get to see it through. In 2018, the ACLU of New Hampshire decided to sue to make the Lori List public. They approached Nancy and other media outlets about joining the case, and she jumped at the chance. We are the named plaintiff, and I believe that's because we've done the most work over the years on the Lori issues, and I'm very proud of that. A handful of local newspapers are also named as plaintiffs in the case, They each filed a public records request for an unredacted lorry list, and they were all denied. That lawsuit reached the New Hampshire Supreme Court in September of 2020. I was there for the arguments, along with a handful of lawyers. They argued through masks. Dan Will, for the state, went first. He told justices, there's really no compelling public interest in making the list public. He reminded them that for every officer on the list, there's just a word or two, like credibility or falsifying evidence. If you make the list public, that's all the public will know about that officer. It's not a mechanism that has been designed and implemented to advance transparency and accountability for police misconduct. This list is not the tool to achieve that. It was never intended to be, and um, and it it cannot serve that function. Gilles Bissonnette with the ACLU argued next. He said the Lori list, as it exists today, 
undermines public trust in law enforcement and the criminal justice system. is working effectively. The system that we currently have in criminal cases is that defendants just have to trust that this regime is working well, that they are getting everything that they're supposed to get. They have no way of verifying it. With transparency, all three of you go on. I want to thank you for those excellent presentations. And the case uh, is taken under advisement, of course, and the court is in recess. Just a few days ago, the New Hampshire Supreme Court issued their ruling in this case. They said for the first time ever that the Lori list is a public document. But they didn't order its immediate release, so we still don't know who's on it. Instead, they sent the case back to a lower court for a judge there to decide if the release of the list would amount to an invasion of privacy for the officers on it. And so for now, that's where the story of the Lori list stands. Still secret, but maybe not for much longer. And no one knows exactly what will happen if it is ever made public. Defense attorneys are likely to take a close look, and newspapers are sure to publish it. But what will we see? How many people on the list are still working as police officers? Will cases be overturned like Carl Lorry's? Will it give people like Yusra al-Sadiq more faith in law enforcement? Maybe. But what making the list public won't do is erase all the side effects caused by years of secrecy around police misconduct. And that's a wrap on Next this week. You've been listening to The List, a special from the document team at New Hampshire Public Radio. Next week, we'll revisit an episode we did in September. It explores the history of racism in New England, from our role in the slave trade to sundown towns that were hostile to some people of color. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio.